multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again, with an inspiring conversation with author, speaker, Tai Chi master, and ordained Taoist monk, Mr. Macho Buddha himself, Arthur Rosenfeld who will delight us with fascinating tales of earning his stripes in a very Chinese way under the Leonardo da Vinci of Tai Chi. Learning to go with the flow with all of us who are born to suffer. Spirals, simplicity, and looking at you and seeing more yacht. And now, asking that you and your friends and neighbors band together to replace every member of the House of Representatives, I am a Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, teacher, fighter, author, poet, and all-around swell guy with a fantastic accent, Daniele Bolelli. Away we go. Mr. Rich Evers, or Evers? Evers. Evers. Yes, Evers. yes. Well, one of those. I can't fucking pronounce anybody's name. Um, <laughs> I've been botching myself now. Yes, I feel, you know, it's his birthday. So that was your happy birthday, man. Well, thank you. We're screwing up your name. That's how we do it. Not the first time. He got wildly drunk true. and uh, managed to lose half of his voice. Absolutely so true. You, you can hear the sound of it. And so I'll talk, you know. But um, so I get to say this is episode 27. Uh, real quick, because we got a lot to chat later in. So let's make things quick. Huge thank you to our sponsor, Datsusara and Onnit. Both of these companies are awesome. You guys by now know the drill. Go in the episode notes to check out their website. The, if you link through our website, you have a discount automatically if you order from there. Datsusara, hemp gear, computer bags, backpacks, you name it. Onnit, anything from... Uh, food products, supplements, exercise equipment, the whole thing. Both of them great companies. We couldn't be more thrilled to have them on board for us. Our affiliates, um, we have Short Design, which is also, talk about great companies. You know, the man makes the best t-shirts on earth. And uh, Coracao Chocolate, the food of the gods there for you. And Audible.com, if you guys are in the market for audiobooks. Again, check all those things in the episode notes. Um, you guys know the drill. T-shirts, again, uh, you want one of our T-shirts, shoot us an email and uh, I'll let you know about color, size, the whole gamut in the episode notes. As usual, many of you guys uh, do your shopping through our Amazon link. We thank you a whole lot for it. That's really sweet. That helps a bunch. And again, if you can donate or you can do other things to help the podcast, if you shop on Amazon, you are helping us already that way. Just click on our link and without having to spend a dime more, you help us out. And speaking of helping us out, if you can uh, write reviews on iTunes, that's also really sweet. Probably takes you a whole 45 seconds of your time and it helps us a bunch. So that would be nice. Today, we don't have anybody on the donation list because we just finished recording. Even though this episode will be released considerably later than the other one, uh, the gap between the recording has been tiny. So no donations there. Any other business that we need to attend to? Other than uh, be sure to stop by uh, our friends at Kiva.org and join the Drunken Taoist uh, team and help somebody uh, improve their life with a microloan that they would in no other way be able to get their hands on. Beautiful. Awesome. 
And I think we are ready to roll with Mr. Arthur Rosenfeld. Huh, I didn't even screw up your name that bad. That's I need to do something about it. I'll, I'll work on it. Don't worry. Since, as you guys just heard from our introduction, Mr. Rich has no voice left because of his drunken orgy. I mean, because of, um, you know, his... Um, it's my birthday. Yes. Okay. That's what we were saying. Um, then I'll, I'll pretend to be rich. Hey, guy. No, sorry. <laughs> I can't fucking do it. I, every time I open my mouth. It's funny. Like, every time even I try to do accents, as in other accents, no matter what type of accent I try to do, I still end up sounding Italian. And it's just like, God damn it, why can't I do it? This sucks. But in any case, moving on. <laughs> Mr. Arthur Rosenfeld, you're with us today. Thank you so much for coming. So happy to be here. So, and uh, I'm glad that we're making up for a rich lack of voice. You're getting a deep, mainly voice in the microphone as well. So that will that will roll well. It just, uh, it took a few clothespins in the right place and now it's working. <laughs> nice. Excellent. Nice, nice, nice. You are lifelong martial artist, writer, you name it. Um, not to be a little too much of an open question before we start getting a little more narrow, but tell us a little bit about you, who you are, what you do for um, those listeners who don't know yet. Give us a little bit the parameters of the field where we're going to play. So uh, professionally and, and personally, two different tracks. Professionally, always wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. um, started writing when I was a kid. Published when I was 18 years old, a freshman at Yale. Um, written for a lot of magazines, national magazines, Parade, Vanity Fair, and so on. Um, working on book number 16. Um, wow, damn. Uh, have a television show on uh, national public television that reaches 54, 56, 58 million households now. That's almost <coughs> our audience, right? Yeah, if you take, take a set of zeros off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought I'd step it up by coming here and seeing you. <laughs> Good. And, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, had, had a lot of different jobs. Uh, been 34 years in the martial arts now. We can talk about that in a second. But personally, a seeker. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, sort of the most interesting stuff to me to talk about is the fact that at 10, 12 years old, I recognized somehow that I was looking at the surface of the pond. Now I realize there is no pond, there is no surface, and that's all an illusion. But back then, the model, the model that until recently I used was looking at the surface of the pond, wanted to see b below it. And to the enormous chagrin of my poor, long-suffering parents and siblings, I might add, um, really distrusted any and all social cultural messages pretty much called into question everything about everything and 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 i still do that um but I, I why <laughs> yeah but why <laughs> no but if why? it was anybody but you right I'd, <laughs> I'd get off on that question <laughs> anyway uh so you know i just figure like for example i saw um on the uh 
on the news yesterday. It must have been on the airplane flying in here. Uh, something about uh, smoothies being replacing fruit in school lunches. Mm-hmm. Saw this somewhere. And, and and I look at the ingredients on these smoothies. <laughs> sugar. Uh, yeah, well, we're, uh, sugar, which is in everything, by the way, in hot dogs. Right, so so there's there's a corporate um, uh, interest in selling us all sugar, making sugar, growing sugar, processing sugar, putting sugar in everything to make us uh, fat and sick, so that our trillion dollar healthcare industry can have something to do, and it's all you know, this is all wound together. And somebody, you know, we're so deep in this that it's like a fish in water you don't see. So anyway, back to you don't you don't know you're in water. So back to the back to the smoothie. Um, I noticed there. Um, you know, you said sugar, and what what jumped out at me was dairy. Okay, so it says it, it gives you the dairy, the daily dairy allowance, and I'm reading this, going, where did we get right. the idea that this mammal of one species needs to imbibe or ingest the liquid or cheesy exudate the secretion that another mammal species puts out for its young, and this is somehow good. Never mind that now we're con- you know, connecting dairy to cancer and all kinds of terrible things, but you know, we have this whole culture, milk, it does a body good. It, it doesn't do a body good. You don't need it. And, and I'm looking at, we're giving it to our kids because we have a dairy requirement, a dairy allowance. What, what is, whose allowance, whose requirement? The people who sell dairy. Yes, Simple the dairy. As, mm-hmm. The dairy Foundation. industry. Okay, yeah. I mean, you know, so, so not, but not to pick unduly on dairy, not that they don't deserve it, but, but you know, th- this is, when you ask me sort of facetiously, but why? <laughs> why? All of, our, all of our, our culture and the way we live and the assumptions, the priorities, the interests, everything that we do, our daily lives, are constructed by interest groups who want something from us. Mm-hmm. Whether it's an educational system about which I've heard you wax eloquently, Daniele, or mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, these big, big, food agribusiness and on i mean we're just so if you start to think about this stuff then you naturally if you are a thinking person or a quester as mm-hmm. i was as a kid you begin to wonder <laughs> what else right <laughs> if, if it's true about sugar if it's true about milk if it's true about what we eat what else is it true about right how we spend our time trading our time for money you know, one renewable resource for one that's not renewable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all kinds of strange ideas that everybody just takes for granted and you, you go swimming there. And and I was wired uh, somehow, and I don't know why. I mean, I just seem to pop out wired to not buy any of this. And by the way, I'm not sure really in the end when I think of listeners out there hearing this I'm not really sure that I want to recommend this path because there are many times when I wish I could not think this way mm-hmm. because life becomes much less conflicted and much easier. On the other hand... Being dead is... There's no conflict when yeah, you're dead. That, that's true, no. too. But, but you know, I, I just feel like somehow you're not experiencing authentically really what's going on mm-hmm. if you're not thinking and asking about these things. So, right. you know, I can't turn away from mm-hmm. them. But how authentic is it to be crushed inside the machine, just moving right. your arms and legs as they're demanded by the beat of the drum that is, you know, the fart of some fucking giant 
control bot, you know? You are a poet, Rich. Um, when I get sick, I am man, it comes dripping out of me. I can see. It was, it was the fart part that really yeah. did it. Yeah, that was just that the, the rest was The rest was kind of lowbrow, but that elevated it to I like, I like, I like to keep it above the level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, of course, that's not authentic, and that's the point. But, but you know, is authentic... Is authentic the right, the right quality for seeking for everybody, and you know, f- five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, two years ago, I might have said yes. Now, um, you know, I've I've had some, I had some mortal issues over the last three years of my life. Died a couple times, got brought back. We we don't have to get into the nitty gritty of that, um, accidents and so on. But we can say that um, I'm I'm very focused now. On, on what I know is right for me as a message and as a lifestyle, but I'm also extremely loath to foist it on anyone else. I'm just not. I'm just not um, an evangelist sure. for anything anymore. Of course, um, I'd rather be a resource. And if people think I'm nuts and they're not interested in what I'm saying, that's no problem. Absolutely, makes sense. Yeah. Not my perfect sense. And um, one of the among the fields where your questioning led you one of them is martial arts clearly since that's part of what the tv show is about that's part of the many of your books are all about and um the um, so i guess what i want to check with you is what originally brought you to the martial arts why do you still practice them 34 years later what's the big deal there why spend so much time and energy about in that particular field so you know there there's two or three <clears throat> historical influences that i can think of in my own life that took me there one is uh, is the sad cliche of uh of bruce lee mm-hmm. and uh uh and keith Car- uh, and david carradine you know uh i gave uh, i received an award last year for martial arts excellence media and so on and the Hollywood thing, and I and I came out to get the award, and it was a nice dinner and a black tie thing and the carpet and all that. And yeah, they ask you to take your award and say as little as possible and get off of the course. stage. And um, so I, I I was given the award, <laughs> I was given the award by uh, Diana Lee and Asanto, who's Bruce Lee's goddaughter and mm-hmm. um, very nice lady. And I you know so I felt like I, I would mention uh, Bruce Lee had received this award as as had Carradine years ago. And um, so, you know, I sort of gave a, a, a kowtow to, to Bruce Lee, and obviously, um, and, and I'll talk more about Bruce Lee later because I just had uh, in Hawaii last week an interesting Bruce Lee interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, actually, Carradine sort of rose to the fore for me mm-hmm. because although he wasn't the same physical specimen, and indeed he wasn't a martial artist at all, um, and, and the fight scenes in that old kung fu tv series were lamentable yeah they Um, hurt well you know but but on the other hand agreed they did on the other hand (laughs) i think yeah i can conjure them and it's a little wince making however that's not the big point the big point is that he did a spectacular job of bringing out the spiritual path Mm -hmm. that's at the root of all this and for a young kid, you know, 12, 13, whatever it was when I was watching that show, it was the, it was the, the old blind monk who could hear a, a, a cricket 
and, and Rich, I want you to note this turn of phrase right now and, and remember it, who could hear a cricket break wind across the room, uh, you know, and, and, and at 85 or whatever he was, you know, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I found that I found that to be absolutely the most inspirational thing about that about that film was the image of of the old guy who's lived this life mm-hmm. and now has this level of serenity and and you know Carradine's Kuai Chang Kane uh, character um, you know sort of on that path too and I remember thinking as a kid you know yeah the, uh, the ass kicking is cool but you know what I want is that right right what I want yeah. is that because even as a kid I recognized that we're kind of uh over the relevance of the pugilistic side of things in an era when you know I live in South Florida where every granny has a revolver in her glove box and, and every and every gas station has a Glock collection and you know we've got smart missiles and we've got drones and, and you know cruise tactical nukes and all that I mean so what if you can kick somebody so what they'll shoot you um, you know the relevance of all of it unless you're living unless you are a you know a policeman a soldier or living in a really really gritty inner city challenging environment and I'm not saying there are plenty of people for whom this kind of stuff is still helpful but for most people who do it certainly um, you know it's it's the deeper path so anyway you know the childhood was influenced by by that on the on, on a deeper level I come from a family half of which was erased in the Holocaust and so there is always um, this darkness around being a a post-Holocaust Jew. Now, my family is not uh, observant uh, or practicing or religious, but the cultural and genetic part of it is there. Sure. So there, I always associated quite a bit of darkness with that, and I had grandparents who were the only survivors on their uh, of their families, and you know the terrible things I heard growing up all the time. And my grandmother was a most wonderful lady who lived a long time, and I was very close to her uh, all those years. Uh, she her f- entire family was wiped out, including her identical twin sister. Jesus. And she lived, um, you know, she was the only survivor. And so every time she would laugh, and there were a lot of laughs because, you know, Jewish humor. Um, I'll, I'll tell some later. Uh, she would laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it's it sounds, it's a funny thing to do that now, to make that imitation, but, you know, that was her life. Yeah. So, so there was this deep well, a thread of not wanting to be in the position of any of my forebears. Right. Of not, of not being the kind of person whom someone else could force to do something. Mm-hmm. Now, look, I, I completely recognize that this is pure fantasy. Sure. I completely recognize that a bunch of SWAT cops come in with tasers and stuff, and it doesn't matter how good my Tai Chi is. Right. I get all that. But we're talking about sort of psychological yeah. motivations, not rational thought. Yep. Um, so, you know, there was there was the fantasy element, and, and there was the genetic fantasy element, the, the media fantasy, the genetic fantasy. And then there was the not-so-fantasy, which is that the New York City which I grew up was quite rough and different than it is now. And I would be, you know, put upon and mugged on a bi-weekly basis. Um, they, the the uh, gangs in my uh, neighborhood growing up in the city were uh, possessed of an, a, a preternatural ability to detect when my 
10 cent allowance had accrued to two bucks and I was on my way to the five and 10 cent store to buy some toy or model to build of a ship or a plane. And they would unerringly intercept me right, right before the purchase and take my, you know, 10 or 20 dimes. <laughs> in my pocket and you know once or twice there was a knife involved and other times it was just you know simple intimidation the little kid surrounded by you know 10 big kids and give us the money but you know i, I there was there was a real you know i got i got a, a warrior backbone somewhere in there and you know that stuff just pissed me off mm -hmm. and there was nothing i could do about it at all so i figured and in addition to that i guess the last element of this which is dovetails nicely with this is the fact that I was a really sickly kid. I had terrible lung disease. I spent a lot of time missing school. Three, four months of the year, I wouldn't even be in school. I'd be lying at home or in the hospital gasping for air on all kinds of horrible drugs, which still have you know consequences for me now. Uh, you know, digestive things and stuff. All kinds of things are messed up by all that. And and I really wanted to uh, see if I couldn't you know get strong. Um, and so I had some inborn ability to fight some sort of instinct of knowing what to do without knowing how to do it mm -hmm. um and and so you know it, it came together for me of course after a few years of training when you pass the point where you can handle yourself in the average bar fight then you know that's the point where either you get a black belt after five years or what have you and most folks um you know either take a different path with it at that point or they give it up mm -hmm. they move on they start playing tennis or they discover golf or, or right. something else, you know, in life. And they think that this is a juvenile pursuit. Uh, and, and so, you know, if that's where you are with it, it is a juvenile pursuit. Uh, if, if, unless you, you take a different turn. So, you know, I took a different turn and I began to put together, you know, the questing part and, and the fear and rebellion part. And I synthesized something which has now lasted me, uh, into my 34th year. What kind of, um, I, no, right now you're primarily known for Tai Chi. What kind of martial arts have you dedicated the most time to? I wish I could tell you that I had reviewed the resume before coming in. Well, just uh, the, <laughs> but if you don't remember, no, it, you I, mean, I, so, I, I you know, remember, just the big I stuff. I remember a lot of them. Um, I did years of, of Ed Parker's Kenpo, mm -hmm. which was a nice street style. Sure. Um, and uh, I did uh, some Choi Le Foot. I did quite a bit of Wing Chun. Mm -hmm. Um, actually, my teacher uh, was a student of Moyat in New York, who was Bruce Lee's, uh, <laughs> funny story about that, uh, it was Bruce Lee's uh, uh, kung fu brother. Mm -hmm. And um, I studied briefly here in Los Angeles with Hawkins Chung, another mm -hmm. well-known Wing Chun guy who was also a man's student. Um, and... Uh, uh, when I moved... When I moved to California from the East Coast, I went, I went looking for Wing Chun, and I found Hawkins Chung, and I didn't know anything about the, um, this is 25 years ago, mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about the uh, rivalries and the internecine relationships between those students. I was very, a, re a real rube. Isn't that, my, isn't that fun about martial arts? It's like any damn person you talk to is... Uh, Oh, you guys practice the same style. I hate that guy. He betrayed me. He did this. He did that. like 
I guess it's human nature. You find it in every field, but in the martial arts, Jesus Christ. It's like if you put one martial artist alone in a room, he's punching himself before you know it because there's an internal <laughs> rivalry going on if you don't. It's Sounds like, like East Coast, West Coast rappers. It, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is like almost a caricature, really. Yeah. But but it makes some sense in the sense that we're investigating the deepest rivers of human nature mm-hmm. when we do these practices. So you know, all of them come up, sure. and they're not always clean and clear, no, good water. Right? Sometimes not. they're murky, choppy stuff. So I go into Hawkins Chung School here in in L.A. This is like I, I want to say it's 1990. I think is right, and. Um, and I'm sitting watching, and you know, the beginning class, and you know, my, and he comes up and he says, you know, can I help you? And I said, actually, it would be okay if I just watch for a little bit. And he said, yes. And um, then they, I, I watch, and the, the the class clears out, and the coon is empty, and he's behind his desk, and this whole group of other guys comes in, mm-hmm. and they're they're fairly rough, actually. Um, there's eight or nine of them, and they are. His advanced students and mm-hmm. my recollection of them is that you know there was a lot of south central element there mm-hmm. and it was really it was rough and you know there were motorcycle uh clothing and and you know the kind of keychains that look like a look like a bike lock on your pants and anyway there was a lot of that and these guys start practicing and and they're they're practicing really hard they're working on the dummy and they're you know they're serious wing chun guys and all of a sudden Hawkins Chung, who's a small guy with a sort of ex-ophthalmic, uh, bug-eyed guys, he 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 stands up and he says, uh, "You show me your dummy work." And he and I had not really talked about anything, so he didn't know that I knew. But but you know, there was no like saying, "Oh, I don't know what that is," or "I'm just a beginner." He he picked up whatever he picked up, and I go, "Well, it's been." You know, half a year since I've been training because I've moved here and I've been looking, just looking for a school. And, I, and I'm sitting on the bench, and he says, "Get up and do it." And like they all, they all glare at me, and there's just no worming out of this, no squirming, no worming. <laughs> right. So I go up and I start doing, you know, my dummy form, which was rusty, but I, I do my best. And uh, and after about a minute and a minute and a half, which, you know. We, you know what a minute and a half feels like in a fight, so it's, it's it was similarly lengthy. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, "Stop!" And he, and he yells at me. I freeze, and he says, "I look at you, and I see more yacht." And he spits on the floor of his own school. <laughs> <laughs> and nice. I'm and I'm so shocked <laughs> because I, I mean, you have to get that this is, <laughs> this is really um, there. There's two things going on, right? One is I, I can't believe that he just said my teacher's name and spit and uh, and in his own school right. uh, on the floor of his own place, and then you know the ultimate disrespect. That's very but Chinese. It, but yes. it's, it's very Chinese. But at the same time, I'm also really tickled by the fact that he sees my teacher in me right especially a teacher that august yeah and i didn't train directly with moyat i trained with moyat's senior student who's right. who was teaching in connecticut but anyway i so 
I, I'm like simultaneously mortally insulted and elated. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I'm not and I'm not really sure what to do. And that's where the good comfort leak. It's like you insulted my teacher. Yes, you but it, right. beat ten motorcycle club guys <laughs> and then the, yeah. challenged the old master and slam before walking <laughs> yeah. into the Although, and, and of course, in that movie, which I'm the, hoping that's where the story is well, going. Well, yeah, I'm going to disappoint you sorely right now. <laughs> but, uh, but 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 remember before I do that the lips were still moving as the as the right the chinese lips were still moving as the english sometimes right um and 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 this is the this is where i begin to sidle out the door rather like a human slinky um and uh a weasel let's say and uh <laughs> and i think wow you know and then and he goes on and he says you know you got to forget everything you know i got to teach you from the beginning you don't know anything moyat was a bookkeeper he was a pencil pusher. He never knew how to fight. He never knew blah blah blah, and and I again I don't realize that I've stumbled into this. I mean now I realize yeah, that I've course. stumbled into this internecine rivalry, but I had no idea. So I say, so I, I say like you know um, you know he seemed pretty good to me. I don't, he's looking at the floor. And these guys are all glaring at me. They're all just looking for a reason. They're yeah, just waiting for the teacher to raise his little yeah. finger and, and <laughs> just, just one pinky will do it right? yeah. and, 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 and so what I'm, what I'm then confronted with is something interesting which is that if I leave and don't come back then I'm a wussy boy right. but, if I, but if I do go back um, I, I'm really sort of betraying my mm-hmm. lineage and, and I really don't know what to do with this and I go home and I sit about sit you need on to kill them all that's well, what you need to so I go back to <clears throat> yeah exactly and take revenge oh. I go back and I and I did train there for about six months mm-hmm. and and what I discovered really was that there were um, and this is in a, a characteristic that is endemic to so many martial arts practices is that there are these tiny differences which in some cases and this is particularly true of Tai Chi which you know the martial the martial essence of which has so been so diluted that it barely exists anymore in in 99% of the camps but there's some little details that if you do them right the art works and if you don't the art doesn't but there's also much more commonly just some stylistic variation and you know he likes it this way and the other guy likes it that way and you know functionally in terms of sure. application it really doesn't matter right and 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 this is what I found. Like, I, this guy's Wing Chun was good. The Wing Chun I had learned was good. And I didn't see any... And, and it was a very hostile learning environment yeah. for me. And it wasn't easy to relax and sort of... So after uh, long enough to have made the point that I was not a wussy boy and I was willing to, you know, suck it up and do it, I explored it. I was open to the idea. Okay, maybe, you know, the Wing Chun I learned was no good. Maybe this guy's got something. And I, he did have something, but the Wing Chun I learned was also good. Right. So I, in the end, I just moved on to other things. So anyway, I did that. I did Wing Chun. I did White Crane. I did Choyle Foot. Um, I did some Shorin Ru, particularly weapons. My very first style was actually um, uh, Tang Sudo, which is Korean, but mm-hmm. ironically means the way of the Chinese fist. Right. Um, and and that's the Chinese, uh, the Korean national martial art, as opposed to Taekwondo, which is the national sport. Right. Um, uh, I did uh, a few years of uh, Kenny Gong's lineage, Shingi Chuan, with Stuart Charno here in L.A., who's very good, wonderful guy. Um, 
and uh, I really liked Chingy very much. Uh, and I had started some Tai Chi actually in the middle 70s with a guy in San Diego, and I found it excruciatingly boring. Um, I, I just really couldn't connect with it at all. And my my mind and body were going, oh my God, please let me move. I can't take this infinitesimal glacial movement. Sure. Um, so I wasn't ready for it, and, and perhaps he wasn't the guy. I had a guy, um, after I'd already done Tai Chi for a while, I remember I had this one guy who um, say, okay, um, now let's work today. We'll, uh, he has me stand first before anything happens right before you know movement zero of tai chi form you're just standing there he's like stop you're doing very good and i'm like i'm not doing anything <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about you know he's like no no that's good and then from then on the entire following hour was the opening of the tai chi thing where you just basically your feet are together and suddenly you open them apart the whole hour was spent about opening the left foot a few feet to the left because it had to be on the exact same line as the right one and i was like you've got to be kidding me right yeah, <laughs> that's so an hour that actually you could spend months on right. that movement but it has nothing to do with where your foot is on the line right. which represents a most profound misunderstanding mm -hmm. so this seems to me to be the time to yet again humiliate myself by describing um because it's now i've done it so many times now that i'm kind of used to it doesn't hurt as bad public um, humiliation yeah, about how i how i met my my current uh, tai chi master and do we get to throw you things while you tell the story kind of like an old-fashioned public exec not necessarily execution right. but you know when they put you in the logs you're gonna, you're gonna be so you're gonna be so shocked and pity me so that you won't feel inclined to throw you'll just be you'll just be looking at me drooling and shaking your head yeah pity is uh, a foreign emotion yeah, here so uh, sorry <laughs> yeah, well you haven't heard this story yet so uh i just moved to florida from california and uh i go into a health club uh la fitness and I find out what they charge, and I, I don't want to. I'm not really making any money yet. I just moved there, and thinking I, I don't want to pay that. So I asked the guy, said, you know, I'll teach a class or two in Chinese internal martial arts a week, and he gave me a free membership for my my family and me. And I, he says, okay. And uh, I'm teaching a class, and the guy comes in one night, and he gives me a, a napkin, like a restaurant napkin, on which he's written this telephone number in sort of bleeding blue ink. He says, this guy just came from China. I met him. He's really good in Tai Chi. I think you should call him. I say, oh, yeah, thanks. I put it in my pocket. I forget about it for a week. A week later, I, I find it washed in my pants. And but the ink is run, but I still can read it. And I uh, call a number, and some guy answers with very not much English. And I say, like, yeah, we make a plan to meet for breakfast. I go down to Hollywood, Florida. And, and, you know, I don't know anything about this guy. Okay, I do not know that he is the Leonardo da Vinci of Tai Chi. I do not know that he has been personally trained in the most, in the wide range of the deepest aspects of the art by the secret Chen village masters, not the guys that you see on YouTube, not the, you know, but, but the real... The real old guys who are not interested in commercial anything and no propagation. In fact, they're interested in all the opposite of keeping it completely secret and sharing nothing. Um, but they're the real deal. I don't. I don't know all kinds of details. I could spend the whole the podcast telling you about this guy. But and needless to say, I don't know that I've stumbled upon you know the gold, the martial arts, platinum mine of my right. life. So 
you know, in typical Rosenfeld fashion, I spend the breakfast telling him how spectacular I am. And uh, I'm always a good start. Uh, yeah, beating the breast. I'm, I'm pumping the biceps yep. a little bit. I've done this and that, and I've done this and that, and this black belts and that black belts and blah blah blah. And he sits there quietly. <laughs> Jesus. Even after I tell the story so many times, it's still just pitiful. Uh, I, I, he says, uh, "You want to move around a little bit?" I said, "Okay." We go outside, start to rain, and we're stuck under the awning of this coffee shop. And I put up my hand, he puts up my hand, we touch, and I'm sitting down. I'm on the ground. And I leap up, and I say, <laughs> slippery, slippery down there. Uh, he smiles, we hit again, we touch the hands, touch, I'm on my tailbone, a little more painfully that time. I reach, I, I show him my shoes, I say, look, bottom, bottom of these shoes are very slick. There's no, it's like a tire on a car, there's no rain groove here. It's very slippery. He smiles and says, ah, we touch a third time. And I'm down again, and I have no idea what he did. I don't even even see him move at all. I'm just sitting down. I'm on the ground. There was no lock, no throw, no nothing. I'm just on the ground. And I get up because that's how thick I am and how stupid and slow. And I say, listen, <laughs> all that stuff about all that pregnant, forget that. Whatever it is you know, I obviously got to learn it. And, and, and would you teach it to me? And he goes, oh, no, you're too big for me you're such a famous boom 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 i'm very busy and he walks away oh. into the rain by the way no pity whatsoever we're just having no, lots no, of fun no on no this pity. Yeah, great well it gets worse <laughs> good, it's, good, it's way worse right way worse than this so i i drive home in my little pickup truck and i remember this is a detail that i always think about I am so filled with this customary self-loathing that I'm whacking the steering wheel so hard that it actually occurs to me I'm going to make the airbag go off. And that I'm just thinking about all the times I've put my foot in my mouth and such a jackass and I'm running my mouth and, 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 and I think about all, I think about this quest that I've been on all these years and, and I have this instinct, this intuition that and and I have no idea this is a pure energetic intuitive thing there's no there was no rational thought involved here because I had no facts I knew nothing about this guy I have this intuition that this is the guy this is the guy that all those all those other styles I've studied you know I'm, I'm at that point um, you know 15 or 16 years in all these things I've studied all the stuff I've done I'm just having this feeling that this guy is it. And I have to fix this. I'm, you know, the, the self-loathing turns mm -hmm. into sort of a steely resolve. And I think somehow I'm going to, I'm going to fix this. So that night I go back to the class and the same guy that gave me the paper is there. And uh, I grab him by the lapel and he goes, get off of me. I said, listen, I need an address. He says, what? I said, the guy, the guy that you told me, the Tai Chi guy, I met him. I need his address. I need to know where he lives. He said, I don't know where he lives. I said, find out. Right? There's no cell phones. Nobody was using cell phones then. And he uses the phone in the gym, and he makes some calls, and he comes back, and he says, okay, okay, here's his address. The next morning, I take a sun hat, a thermos with some water, and a paperback book, and I drive down 
to where this guy lives and I sit on the curb in the street outside his house and I wait, get there about six in the morning. And uh, well, I don't know, a couple hours later he comes out and he sees me there. He sees me and says, you! He gets in his car and drives away. <laughs> right? And and you know I sit there all day and I remember I was like taking a leak in the bushes and I didn't I didn't I was afraid to go and get lunch because I was thinking you know what no. if I miss him when he comes back I sat there all day he comes back he parks his car he walks right by me goes in his house nothing I, I do the same thing the next day I'm there at six o'clock in the morning he gives me the stink eye walks into his car drives away this goes on for twenty days <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Okay, on the on the the more at, at some point, like at the two week mark, I'm sitting there all day. My wife is like, you know, she, God knows what she's thinking. I'm doing all day. She goes, what, 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 "Are you working? What's going on? All right. I don't see you writing. I don't. Where where are you going? I go, this is something I have to do. She usual for, with her usual forbearance. She doesn't say anything. So uh, like the, the morning of that, I think it was the twentieth or the twenty first. It was about three weeks. Oh, and the second week he comes out, he goes, you know, you're stalking me. Go home. You leave me alone. I call the police. Get out of here. Don't you love yeah. Chinese culture? Yeah. And and then and then the third week, you know, he finally comes out and he goes, mm, you're very persistent. And, and he didn't say it like that. But I don't want to mimic him, but his English wasn't too good. And he, and I said, yeah. Did he spit on the floor at least? No. He says, you're sure he was Chinese? Because you're very persistent. And I said, yeah. He said, all right, meet me in the park, you know, uh, tomorrow at such and such a time. So I go, and you're talking about him, this guy showing you how to move your foot for uh, an hour. He he brings a thermos of tea, a Chinese newspaper. He sits down on the bench, and he has me, <laughs> he has me stand in standing pole. Right. As a meditation posture with my arms up like yeah, a log in a tree. Yeah. But I've never done this before. Right. And And he says, don't move. And and within you know four minutes, my neck is in spasm. Sure. My shoulders are burning. My knees are killing me. My quads are burning. My yep. feet hurt. That's four minutes, right? At forty minutes, I'm really thinking, it really just. It, I should really just be better if I was dead. <laughs> just, I would be better off dead because I mean, I mean, my yeah. back is in spasm. I'm yeah. twisting. I'm actually standing there while the muscles are spasming, and I'm trying. Right. But he told me not to move, and God damn it, I'm not going to move. I'm just forcing myself to. You know, at the end of the hour, he says, "Money." He puts out his hand. I pay him, and and he goes away. He says, "Come back tomorrow." So we do this. So we do this. We do this for for three months. <clears throat> For three months, Jesus. I meet him three times a week, and I just stand while he reads the newspaper and drinks his tea, and I pay him, and then I go home. <laughs> right? And after this, <laughs> and after the three months, he begins to show me some stuff. Right? Well, you know, needless to say, he becomes, you know, my not only the the guy who saves my life on so many levels, but you know, one of my dearest friends and a fa fantastic guy. Um, and I learn exactly what I've stumbled into and, and what a genius he is. And all of that seems like nothing and irrelevant. But at the time, it wasn't easy. Yeah, doesn't sound like it. And again, despite all these, no pity. Just that's a cool story. But we're having fun. So you sweat standing there while you're spazzing and stuff. 
Yeah, that's there's something about Chinese culture that's bizarre on that. Like they seem to that's part of the reason why, you know, there's so much in the martial arts, in healing, in you name it, in so many different fields that like some of the coolest things about Chinese cultures are just disappearing left and right. Because anyone who is remotely sane, and in this case we definitely don't include you in that category after the story you told us. Mm-hmm would not put up with this shit, you know? It's like, after one day, they're like, are you fucking kidding me? Hell no, you know? It's like, if you don't want to teach me, screw you that, don't teach me, you know? It's it's a whole other, like, if you are, you know, in the year 1000 and uh, you are, you know, it, it fits in a different world. In this world, it's like, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt that I would be a lot more commercially successful with my teaching if I didn't have as traditional view. I had a pair of, Chinese sisters, uh, girls in their 20s, come to my class like two years ago or so. And, and after the wall stretching that we do, just as we haven't even started working out yet, we're just getting ready to go. After the wall stretching, which is, you know, rigorous, they, and they're going, oh, it hurts. And I go, good, go a little higher. And, and one of them says, you're, you're like my grandfather. You're more Chinese than I am. This is not for us. We didn't come here for, we came to America. And they leave and they never come back. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I take it as a compliment. There, is, said that. there is a fine line, or not so fine perhaps, between tough standards, because that's just the game. You know, that's if yeah. you want to play it, those are the standards. And crazy Chinese ascetism, sadomasochism, actually, because it involves both teacher and student, where some of the Sikhs are just like, okay, really, do we want to push it to that point before? It's like... Yeah, and, and this was not anywhere right. near that point. This was just stretching on the wall. No, exactly. And, That's, and, you know, the reason why I stretch the students like that, and, and most, I, I really don't know any other Tai Chi teachers that do it. Um, and there's all this... Uh, uh, data now about you know stretching before stretching after it weakens the, the the integrity of the joints and blah blah I shouldn't do it uh, my experience has been that this particular little stretching routine that I do obviates injury mm-hmm. and that I don't do it for an increase in flexibility before training I understand that there nobody's getting more flexible from that they actually get more flexible from the spiral movement of the of the tai chi itself which is sort of like that doing to a rubber band on those little um, balsa wood airplanes, um, you know, where you wind it. Right. And, and then, you know, the rubber band after a while becomes sort of sags, and it's tight at the beginning. But all that spiral movement actually is fantastic for stretching. But I do the wall stretching simply to prevent injury, and I have a good track record with that, so I keep doing it. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Absolutely. No, that makes sense. Yeah, it's funny. The, the whole Chinese thing cracks me up. Like, culturally speaking, there's some weird... Like, you have them all down. The dude who spits on the floor, talking about the other teacher. The, uh, you know, you're stalking me. Go away. I don't want to teach you for 20 <laughs> days. You know, all of that is like... There's something peculiar about that. Yes. It is a certain something. But, you know, I understand, I guess, why it works for me and why I, I've stayed with it is that I, I understand... Number one, the the dissolution of of integrity and discipline that is so widespread in our culture. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about in MMA or other things where guys work hard and do stuff, good stuff. Sure. But I'm just saying in culture at large. Yeah. And the other thing I understand is that I like I like giving meaning to something. Yeah. You know, we're born, we get old, we get sick, we die. 
there's no meaning to anything unless you give it meaning. Sure. So, you know, these rituals, the, the respect, the devotion to the lineage, the feelings about the value of the training, you know, that's where it all comes from in the end. And it doesn't come from sadomasochism, although it's humorous to think so. Sure. But it really comes from, from that. Y you know, certainly if Lao Tzu um, were to watch... Uh, the strenuousness with which I and a few other people attempt to preserve the wolf tooth mace form or the guanggung dao form, he would laugh and say, you know, man, there's glocks now. Yeah. Forget about that the halberd and that crazy old weapon and you don't need that. And life is change and, and the dao is sure. change and all of this is, you know, don't get attached to any of this. Just let it go. But at the same time, you know, he might say that, but he's the guy who wrote the Tao Te Ching, mm -hmm. and he's the guy who did take the trouble to put it down, and sure. he's the guy that did take the trouble to set standards of behavior and the way we ought to look at the world. And despite his legendary and much vaunted uh, back and forth with Confucius, who you know existed where I think Lao Tzu probably didn't, um, the point is that you know there, you can say that you want to be like water and go like it, but there are still things that do matter. No, of course, I agree. No, I guess my thing is, this is just my own um, issues with Chinese culture, and I have many, but uh, I think like to me, when I think of uh, the kind of discipline and structure that you can have when you train, I don't know, judo or something, it's not that you don't have it, those guys have it, but they have been able to figure out a way to craft it in such a way that people in the modern world can train judo. They see the logic to it, they see the steps, they see all of that. And that's why, I mean, of course, everything changes and not everything may be taught the way it was supposed to and all of that, but you do still get the fact that people will enroll their kids in it or something. In a lot of traditional martial arts stuff, the fact that it's disappearing, and as you put it earlier, you know, 99.9% .9 plus in the Tai Chi world is something that has nothing to do with Tai Chi, it tells you something that maybe there's something about the way pedagogically things are approached that is not working to the optimum. Because granted, only some people are going to get it, and I'm not one to consider that just numbers equal success. I get that, you know, I definitely get it. At the same time, if uh, three people in the world gets it, maybe there's also a problem with the way the, it's delivered. You know, maybe there could be another way where 300 people in the world get it and it's, you're not compromising standards, but you're just making it slightly more acceptable. Yeah, I'm I'm with you and I'm not with you on this one. It's kind of, I, that's how I am with myself most of the little, time. It's so a little it's complicated. Um, I mean, I I think uh, in some respects the actual authentic Tai Chi training was not ever intended for a wide audience, mm -hmm. um, and and in some respects it's not. I mean, I'm sure that. If my students and the folks who help me in my work uh, listen to this, they will be nodding, going, <laughs> "Why didn't you listen to him? Good God, why didn't you listen to Bolelli? Please <laughs> hear what he's telling you, yes. you obstinate sob." And, and I mean, I mean, <laughs> so I, I, I get it, and and I and I see it, and I try, like, like for example, in my books. I do this, mm -hmm. right? And on television, I do this to, to bring, 
you know, the health benefits and make it accessible. And, you know, I, I, I had, you know, accessibility wars with my editor of that Tai Chi book about this very subject. But in the actual teaching of the art, I'm, I'm not as, as open and as good at that as I might be. And maybe it's because I understand that if you take out the philosophical and the worldview from it, which mean, which includes some of those anachronistic elements mm -hmm. of Chinese culture that we may find irrelevant or distasteful even, you lose the theoretical core of it, and then it becomes something else. And, you know, again, if Lao Tzu was watching, he might say, okay, so what? Become something else. It evolves. Martial arts is a dynamic human thing, and it, right. they, they evolve. And I get that, too. Um, but I, I, I just I have to say that any sentence that begins with but. Right? No, <laughs> but know? that's how it is. I, I mean, I feel, I feel an attachment, and maybe this is my emotional weakness. I feel an attachment to not seeing some of that information lost. Like, for example... I talk to other Tai Chi teachers all the time. People write and call me as a result of my book or my television. And, you know, I, I have conversations with them. And none of them, none of them, I don't mean like just a few or most of sure. the donor, none of them are aware of the fact that the Tai Chi form, that the form practice that we engage now, um, clearly in Chen style and, and, and less so in, in some of the derivative ones, but still, um, comes directly from the halberd practice. Mm -hmm. That, you know, uh, Chen Wang Ting, uh, uh, 1600s, uh, the guy who cohered the system into the recognizable thing we know now, you know, studied warriors on horseback. That that halberd is a, is a seven-foot pole with a three-foot sword on the end and a, and a spear point on the other end. And he, he watched, you know, if you've seen Kung Fu Flex, you've seen people on horseback with it or running through the palace with a dragon behind them. That's how and I go to work all the time, so uh, I know perfectly, me, yes. Me, me too. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you should see the, the, the look on the face of the cops who pulled me over <clears throat> for speed and then opened my trunk. So um, anyway, you know, they, they understand. They, they don't have any idea, most folks, that, that, you know, all the form movements, the spiraling of the hands, the stances, come from gripping the horse, no saddle, right? No stirrups, holding the reins in one hand and this thing in the other, going into battle with it, and it mm -hmm. weighs 30 pounds, 40 pounds, 50 pounds. And, you know, you're galloping, and you, you know, surrounded by infantry, and, you know, you're cutting a swath through them. I mean, the strength and the body mechanics that are required to do that are absolutely preposterous. They're ridiculous. It's impossible. Can you imagine the sheer impact of that thing moving through a seven-foot lever on your shoulder right. if it hits something while your horse is galloping. You're yeah. going 20, 30 miles an hour, and all of a sudden, boom. So, you know, Wang Ting was able to figure out, okay, well, you know, what is Dantian rotation? How do we use the hips and waist properly? And and he comes up with that by watching how these guys do that. And, and then, you know, he puts that weapon in the hands of people on the ground says, okay, now use it to attack the horse and use the same thing, cut the horse's legs with it. Then it becomes useful on the ground too. And so all these movements directly, the form, the old form that we, the, the, the Lao Da Jia, the, the archetypal Chen form that you do, is that weapon without it in your hands. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Nobody knows this right. at all. Right. And I would submit that if you do know it, and if you put that weapon in your hand, even if you just use a three-pound wooden facsimile, you will understand things about Tai Chi that you never understood before. And that's, that's actually just to be a pain in the ass. I agree, and that's why I think that maybe letting somebody sit on a curb for 20 days maybe a few more people would know it if you let them sit for two days you know what i mean it's like it's uh, yes you're exactly right and that's why i feel like that knowledge gets lost because the transmission is so damn complicated and made difficult in the process of like there's still this mentality that characterizes so much of chinese culture of it's secret. You don't teach it to anybody. You have to show up at my doorstep for three years, just serving me breakfast before I decide that you're worth it. And maybe I'll show you some. You know, it's like uh, that's the recipe for death of a culture. You know, that's so. Well, and and that culture is dead, right? Um, you know, I mean, that, the culture we're talking about, you know, died with Mao Zedong. That's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, my my teacher is a very strong uh, advocate, and 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 adores traditional Chinese culture in, in ways that, you know, you wouldn't recognize them superficially. You'd meet him and go, what a cool, easygoing, mm-hmm. nice guy. You'd never pick this up just meeting him. Sure. Nor would you ever pick up that, you know, this little guy is the deadliest guy you've ever met in your life. Right. Um, you, you'd never pick any of that up. Um, but I think maybe, you know, maybe what gives me, just, you know, as you're, listen, as you're saying this, I'm thinking that maybe what gives me a connection with the attachment to that way of doing things is perhaps an understanding from the suffering of Jewish culture and the historic suffering of the Jews. I have some sort of strange understanding and connection with the misery of Chinese history, Mm -hmm. which is just the most, you know, on the widest possible scale, the most tragic, right. and over and over again. And, and so, you know, I can understand how people could get sort of stuck, stubborn, and, and cleave in the same way that, you know, religious, fundamental Jewish people cleave to their idea of God and their idea of their, their being chosen and their identity, none of which I'm connected to, by the way, in any fashion whatsoever. But I, I recognize yep. it, I see it. Yep. And, and I wonder if there isn't some sort of requirement that in order to keep going through all this, you have to imbue your secret stuff with this mythic proportion, quality, character in order to make it all last. And that maybe that's why I'm reluctant to judge it. On the other hand, you know, I do like to teach that Guan Gung Dao halberd. And in fact, in a very untraditional way, which is not at all the traditional uh, Mm -hmm. Chen Tai Chi curriculum, um, I, I will sometimes put it in the hand of a beginner. Somebody that I see is clearly not going to stick around for, you know, months of standing pole right. meditation or, you know, very slow uh, internal body changing movements, but just like wants to move. Um, you know, a younger person who comes and goes, look, I, I just want to, I want to break a sweat. Right. And, you know, you, you have a choice. You either say, okay, fine, then, you know, go to a jazzercise class. Right. Or, or go to a BJJ class. Yeah. Um, um, or if you want to keep them, you have to be smart and yeah. you have to figure out how can I crack into that. Right. And then in the, but, but with the goal of giving them the whole thing. Yeah. Right? But that's exactly what yeah, I mean. That's yeah, exactly, I'm thing. not saying compromise on content, none whatsoever. 
because mm-hmm. that's the goal is to keep the whole thing what it is. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. Is I wouldn't even call it compromise, but change delivery. Because as you say, otherwise with a bunch of people that, and some of them may be a waste of time because they are just people who don't have the discipline or the commitment to help in any way long-term. But there may be people who are could be into it, could have that drive, could have all of that, but you have to kind of walk their way a little and sort of not exactly hold them by the hand, but, you know, show them if, if you just have the sort of... Because tra- the typical thing of the classic Chinese teacher is, I don't want to teach you. Go away. You bug me, you know? Yes. And it's like most people today are going to go back only so many times before you say, you know what? You're just a cranky old man. Screw you. I don't want to learn from you. And then... Yeah, so, I mean, I agree, obviously, with everything you're saying, and, I, and as I pointed out, I do it widely. Um, there is, you know, some defect in my character, I suppose, <laughs> that there's some, there, there's more than one, I'm afraid, but there's some defect in my character around this, <laughs> just picking one right. out, of the, out of the field here, yeah. one strawberry, um, and say, say that, you know, um, I, there is a part of me that feels like I, I need to know that this student is worth it right and and some of this is you know the result of bad experiences with students who take a lot of time and then you know amount to nothing yeah. in the end and some of it is my own very selfish self-centered and personal approach to it which is i've only got so much time yeah i've only got so much energy and i i just don't want to waste it yeah you know of course of course no that i agree among other things you are an ordained Taoist monk Please do tell. <laughs> the way you say it makes it seem even more preposterous than it is. <laughs> That's so, my specialty. So I got that. So, um, you know, earlier we were talking about making teachings accessible. And I think that there is a huge thread in, in Taoism in fact, maybe just the very core of Taoism is its usefulness. Mm-hmm. We talk about its spirituality. I just I just got done writing uh, a love story about the the legendary character of Lao Tzu. I have no other idea whether uh, Lao Tzu for the listeners that's L A O new word T Z E or T S E or T Z U. The author of the Tao Te Ching largely, you know, considered the sort of father of Taoist thinking. By the way, we know Taoism in this country as um, the purely, pretty much, through the work of the great, the, the great George Lucas, who is a great fan of Taoism and makes makes the whole Star Wars world, uh, uh, you know, is driven by Taoist ideas. Absolutely, and and the, you know, the the war between the resistance and the empire the empire is the technocrat it's the authoritarian it's in fact the confucian mm-hmm. and the and the resistance the jedi uh, masters are are tai chi masters right. taoist masters the jedi knights are 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 uh, uh, tai chi martial masters and the lightsaber is you know represents the gen sword and you know, he, he all this thing about living in accordance with the laws of nature. That's why the good guys in in Star Wars are. You know, you see them 
on a planet that is green with old growth forest, the Ewoks, the Wookiees. They look they look like, you know, creatures. Their their worlds are are natural and welcoming and green, whereas the Empire, you know, uses clones and they're hard and they're a million white identical um, warriors lined up, you know, robotic soldiers and so on. So, you know, Lucas did the most masterful job of making Taoist ideas mainstream in in such a way that nobody even needs to know that they're Taoism because the label is not really that important. It's not important at all. Right. When I wrote this book about Lao Tzu, you know, I've written this Tai Chi book. I've written a bunch of books that have martial arts themes and Chinese history and so on. But this one is a love story. And, you know, I reveal the Taoist teachings through a love story that has so little doctrinaire flavor of Taoist stuff that the vast majority, the vast majority, I hope, of folks who read it and enjoy it, whether we make it in a film, whether it's just a big novel and a lot of people read it and enjoy it. Um, It's called Yin, by the way, Y-I-N. You know, the vast majority of people who are exposed to this story will not be aware or care that the kernel of this is is Taoist. And part of writing that kind of thing is to make it accessible, but another part of it is to be in service to the larger idea. So what I find in my career now, in my work, in my life, is that you know submitting, surrendering, to the fact that I am just the vehicle, I am a piece of PVC pipe who is transmitting these ideas, is enormously freeing, simplifying, and empowering. Mm -hmm. I find that I don't have to worry so much about the normal cultural ideas of career and money and achievement and all that. A lot of that stuff just goes away because those things that we all contend with are very me-oriented. But if you feel like you're largely irrelevant... Um, and and for me, this is a big has always been a big ego struggle, and the more the better I get at it, the more easily life unfolds and the more enjoyable things are. Um, then you know you're the message is out there. You are sort of a slave to it. You're a servant to it. You're a facilitator for it. And and you know how much light reflects on you personally becomes irrelevant. So you know when you talk about the monk thing, you know part of part of Assuming that role, um, I'm, I'm not the kind of monk who spends all his time in a cave in the mountains or in the monastery. And, and in fact, Taoist monks, we talked a little bit uh, earlier about this um, without, without the mics on, about the difference between you know, Buddhist and Taoist monks. You know, Buddhist monks are often renunciates. So you know, life becomes very simple and you give away everything and you subsist on alms. In China, after the Cultural Revolution and after the sort of illegal stat- status of all these different um, uh, philosophies or even religions, um, you know, things have come back. It sort of like reminds me of that game Whack-A-Mole, where something is coming up out of the ground and it waits to see, is it going to get smacked down? And, and if not, you know, it can flourish. And if it is, boom, it, come, it goes down and it comes out somewhere else. Um, and, and this is, you know, this has been religion in China in the last, you know, 50 years. And now with some somewhat a little bit of relaxation and freedom, you know, there are Buddhist monasteries in the Shaolin Temple, which has become a big tourist attraction now. Um, the Taoist tradition has always been associated with the ruling classes. And in fact, 
Lao Tzu's book, the Tao Te Ching, some people interpret it as a um, as a handbook for the emperor on how to rule. And certainly, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that only emperors should read it, mm-hmm. but certainly it was and is useful to people who are wielding power of one kind or another. Sure. It's also a book about how for an everyday person to live a meaningful life in harmony with the way the world works. And this is an interesting point. Everything, whether it's my Tai Chi book about, you know, the relevance of Tai Chi, that book, uh, Tai Chi, The Perfect Exercise, which just came out, that book is, is an argument in favor of the relevance of an ancient practice in modern times. And it's a challenge to the existing American speed and greed paradigm to find more meaning, more health, uh, more pleasure, more satisfaction, more effectiveness in in how you live. The, you know, writing a novel, a love story, in which I, I set the protagonist as the father of Taoism in a, in a romantic relationship, you know, that's just another way of getting, making clear how practical and useful these ideas really are. Mm-hmm. And And so I don't see... I'm not the kind of monk who sees all this as an esoteric stepping out of of engagement with the world. Um, I respect that choice, but that isn't my choice. the The role here is to sort of, rather than step out, to bring in. Mm-hmm. So you know, in in China, some of the Taoist monasteries, particularly the ones that are in the cities, are funded and well funded by wealthy patrons. Some of those patrons may be people high up in the Communist Party. They may be officials. They may be uh, business magnates. They're people who are very successful in working inside the culture and in some cases even controlling and manipulating it. But they use Taoist ideas to wield their force and their power and achieve their results with the greatest efficiency and effectiveness possible. So, you know, Taoism is as much a how-to live and how to use the forces mm-hmm. at work in the world as it is a why to. Mm-hmm. And most pure Taoist philosophy does not engage. Uh, there is no God. It doesn't talk about, you know, uh, what, what happens after you die and, and you know, the, the moral stuff of why you should or shouldn't do things. Although there is a deep moral thread that runs all through it. The morality really is dictated by what I see from my own education as a, as a biology student and a medical student as evolution, right? It's all about the way the world works biologically. Um, You know, in Tai Chi, we have these spirals. Everything is a spiral. A spiral is a circle in three dimensions. You know, my teacher brilliantly once remarked that the spiral, as ubiquitous as it is, is nature's way of handling conflict. Mm. And resistance. So, you know, why does a hurricane spawn tornadoes that spiral in the air? The answer is that, you know, wind going at a certain speed over the surface of the earth encounters things. It encounters the drag of the ground. It encounters trees, buildings, canyons. And when, when, a, when a force like that encounters a uh, resistance, what does it do? It spirals. Well, then, you know, this is a perfect example of sort of Taoist practicality because Tai Chi is a Taoist art 
and Tai Chi embodies Taoist ideas perfectly, mm-hmm. or at least it's, it's supposed right. to, right? Um, so, you know, very, very practical ideas. Uh, you know, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to recount this story uh, that happened to me in childhood because I was thinking about your trip to Italy, um, and this seems like a right turn, but it's sort of connected in a way, um, because the Taoist life can be a very rich life. By rich, I mean rich spiritually, rich mm-hmm. materially, rich in experientially, uh, rich in feeling. Um, and it, it's, not, um, it's not the sort of monastic. It doesn't need to be. It can be. I mean, there are plenty of Taoists who go in, the, in a cave for 10 years. But it doesn't require that. Um, when I was a kid, my father, uh, who is still a, a magnificent physician and was for 30 or 40 years, one of the very most famous and successful cardiologists in the world. He had a lot of very luminous uh, and notable patients, you know, people who ran the world, kings and princes and captains of industry and Hollywood people and so on. And I remember one of his patients was uh, the fellow who at the time owned Martini and Rossi. Mm -hmm. Uh, His name was Count Rossi, Teo Rossi. And sometimes my father would bring his kids and my mom and we would we would take vacations uh, or or have an opportunity to spend time with some of these people. Uh, they were grateful maybe my dad had done something for them, saved a life, saved a kid. Saved, you know, he, he was involved in remarkable things in his field. So we went on vacation one time on Rossi's boat, the Tritona, we were anchored off the coast of Mykonos in the Mediterranean. And I want to paint the picture for you. There's about a 150-foot converted minesweeper, quite a modest yacht by today's standards for the super-rich, but at that time it was the bomb. And, um, you know, there's a, there's like a, a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh hanging in the sure. salon. Yeah, and, you know, it's just... But, but this guy, uh, Rossi, was the most... You're going to get to hear my Italian accent. It's not Bolelli, but it's... Uh, do my best. Um, it, he was the most elegant, kind, and agreeable fellow. Some of these super rich uh, people and powerful people that I met in my childhood were really miserable people. Um, but this guy was not. And so we're sitting on, on the stern of his yacht. It was about a 30-foot wide white leather couch, gently curved, and we're anchored off Mykonos, and the sun is going down, and the Mediterranean is so beautiful. The angle of the sun makes the, the water gold, and uh, there are beautiful people half naked or naked on the, on the beach, and the, uh, the folks who worked for Rossi brought out the butlers, brought out a series of canapes and trays, silver trays, and their uh, white gloves and their liveried... Uh, Hands and tough life, uh, yeah, huh? yeah, yeah, miserable. Yeah, that's <laughs> sort of that's sort of the point of this. Um, and 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 where where I'm going with it, and and he brings out these. He says, and look, I got this feta cheese from the island, and, I, and Dottori, I brought you this uh, 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 salmon from 
from Scotland. I had it flown in by helicopter because I know you like this and how about these olives and I, and then I'm thinking, oh my God, really? But this, this is ridiculous. Look at this guy. And he's so elegant and he's so um, so obviously enjoying himself, right? And then he brings out, the, the steward brings out the wine. And it's a sweet French dessert wine, a sauterne called Chateau d'Iquem. And my father, who was at that time seeing himself as a wine connoisseur um, and very into wine, goes, oh, oh the Chateau d'Iquem. And Rossi takes the cork and he sniffs it. And the guy, and, and I got to tell you, I don't know. I think my recollection is that that's like in the 70s, this was a $500 bottle of wine. Right. I can't imagine what it would be today. I don't, sure. you know, so, but just, just the point is a crazy wine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Crazy wine. And, and he opens the, he opens the, he snips the cork and the guy, butler pours the cat some wine in his glass. And to my father's horror, Rossi reaches into an ice bucket, takes a handful of ice and puts it into the glass of the wine. And, and, and my father can't help himself. And he goes, no, no, not ice in the chateau. You can't, please. And, and I'm watching this interplay between the two, thinking, you know, oh, look at this. And Rossi looks at my father and says, Dottore, sometimes you know something, and sometimes you just think you know something. He says, these French sauternes are very high in sugar. And when you change the temperature, they fractionate. <laughs> he says, and he holds up the glass, and he says, this clear thing here, this water, is the, is the water from the ice. This yellow line here, and this is the wine. And this brown line, this meniscus, is what God has for dessert. Yeah, and then he takes like a little demi-tasse espresso spoon and he scoops up a little bit of it and he thrusts it into my dad's mouth. And my dad like has a big O right there. Like, oh my God. Oh my God. That's the most delicious thing I've ever tasted. And I'm watching, uh, first of all, somebody dresses down my dad who was like, I've right. never seen that before. And then, and then you know, gives him an orgasm with this wine. Right. And I'm watching, I'm watching this fantastic thing. And, and I remember thinking, Many, oh, oh, so the end of the story is Rossi inhales loudly with satisfaction. He puts his arms on either side of the white leather couch. He looks at his Rembrandt and his yacht and the Mediterranean and his serving people and his yeah. wine and his blah, blah, blah. And he says, born to suffer. <laughs> so this line, you know, this born to suffer line, you know, right. has been sort of family lore for yeah. me. But but now, why do I tell the story aside to amuse you with it? Is is that I I look back on on Rossi, and I think that actually Rossi was quite the Dalit. <laughs> And that, that's you know, what everybody would think of course that would <laughs> the logical conclusion to the story but, but is, when yeah. I think of the way Rossi lived yeah. and the way he followed the flow of things and I didn't see him get you know unlike so many people who have empires and ambitions mm -hmm. and stuff and all that 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 he he didn't struggle right you know he he went with the flow mm -hmm. and he understood sort of the music of nature and from what I was able to see of his life, at least as a child, mm -hmm. the impression was that this guy figured it out, right? Figured out. He was enormously philanthropic. Everybody loved him. He was not a self-congratulatory sure. asshole. And yet, 
he had this dream life. And, and so I don't think that, you know, when we talk about the monk and we talk about Taoism, I don't think that there's anything in the, in the Taoist path that although certainly simplicity is key. Yeah. Because you don't want to have your, you don't want to be in the speed and greed run of things where other people, and which is how we began our talk, right, about how there's so many things out there in the world that take our time and energy, our money, uh, they, they command and demand our belief, our obedience, and in the end, you know, they're not, they're not real, they're not important, they're not clear, and they're certainly not simple. Mm-hmm. And our lives have become very, very complex. So, you know, following, reading Taoist books, seeing uh, Tai Chi practice, engaging Tai Chi practice, finding something that gives you an alternative to step out of that fray, mm-hmm. not as a release from it, but as an alternative to it. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, you, you think that these practices and this way of looking at life, and I think about Rossi this way, because even though on the surface, you know, he, had, he was the furthest thing from a monk, but in some ways still very, very Taoist guy. You Funny mean story. having your salmon flown in from Scotland Apparent- is, is not the, the top of simplicity? Uh, Apparently so, because I don't think he was doing the flying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, if, if, right, if Rossi was scrambling around, right, right, and you saw that his attention was distracted and his health was disturbed mm-hmm. by the fact that he was pulled in so many, hey, listen, I got to go get the salmon, and I got to get the yeah. feta cheese, and I got to pop, 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 No. Actually, on whatever level you do it, whether you have a thousand people doing your bidding as an emperor or a million people doing your sure. bidding, or whether you are living the most humble life of a bus driver who goes home at night to his TV, it, that, that, the level of it is not the point. The, the point of it is how much wuji can you keep? How much personal, emotional, and intellectual equilibrium and clarity can you keep? And if you have all kinds of people helping you do that, okay. And if you're doing it by yourself, okay. But that the arbiter is not how much money you have or what your life looks like from the outside. The arbiter is, are you running like a headless chicken? Right. There are plenty of people who had who have far more than Rossi had, who are much, and, and I knew them and met sure. them, who were richer and more powerful than he was, but their lives were a living hell. Yeah. And they were, they were never, they wouldn't give you 30 seconds of attention. Why? Not because they didn't care, but because they didn't have it to give. Yeah. There was no presence. They were not present right. at all. This guy, I and you know, possibly I stretched that. I stretched the point about him a bit because I wanted to share that amusing Italy story with you. But still, the, 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 the point is there. Yeah. No, no, that makes sense. Do you, do you have a favorite translation of the Tao Te Ching? Because we probably get twice a month somebody wondering where to put their toe in the water and um, yeah, when it's not too complicated. Or So, I mean, I, I've got like 50 of them on my, uh, literally, I think I have between 50 and 60 different translations on my bookshelf. Um, how simple is that? Uh, but but, <laughs> but none, none of them command me if I don't want them to. Uh, I like my favorite one is by Guy... Leakley, L-E-E-K-L-E-Y. Mm-hmm. My second favorite one is by William Scott Wilson. Um, and then there's a few others I like. Uh, Stephen Mitchell's is okay. Uh, Jonathan Starr's is okay. Uh, but I really like Leakley's and, and Wilson's. Yeah. There you go. Quick thing, um, just out of curiosity. 
on a practical level, how did it work? You just found yourself rolling around the streets in China, knock on a door, say, you know, I really want to be a Taoist monk. <laughs> and they say, of course, yeah, our right. white brother, please come They're in. Come Let's right put in. a robe They're, on you. And, uh, there was, you know, I saw a place, spring rolls right. and monk rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it worked because... And by the way, just so I throw a couple in there as well, uh, what's the role of the Chinese government that it plays in how some of the temples are allowed to operate or not and so on? So... But first you, and then... Well, I mean, I think they go together because um, my my teacher, who is well-connected and from an august family in China, um, you know, felt that this would be a good thing to do. And so it was his you know, connections with local government and mm-hmm. and um, even not so local government that, that you know, had got this uh, cleared and, and the, the ceremony and all. But, you know, I think the good news is that there is more and more freedom in China for mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And, you know, China still has knee-jerk reactions to groups like the Falun Gong. Um, but, you know, those groups are... Arguably, you know, a lot more in your face and politically active, and I wouldn't judge, I wouldn't judge them because I'm entirely in favor of all religious freedom, and I don't like the idea sure. that any government shuts down that. I mean, that you know, that that's what led that urge is what led to the founding of the United States, and right. at least in part, right? So we all can connect to that. Um, but I, I think that there is some relevance to the role of Taoism in and Taoist thinking among educated, more powerful elements of Chinese society that, that makes some forbearance of this possible. That's what I get. I don't know all those people. I don't right. know every one of them. I don't know how many people in the, you know, in the, in the ruling, uh, what they call it, the Politburo or whatever they call it now, um, you know, a central committee. I, I don't know that, uh, you know, how many of those are practicing Taoists or how many of those people support or are sponsors for Taoist temples, but I know that there is some of that going on. I guess to what degree do they actually control the content of what's going on and how, to what degree is sort of free, you know, some people contribute or whatever, but they get to, you know. I don't, I don't have the impression that uh, at the temple monastery that where I was ordained, I don't have the impression there's any controlling content going okay. on at all. Cool. I don't think, you know, I think they're operating by the leave, of, as we've just discussed, of yeah. people who are interested in that. Makes sense. And and I don't think, um, I don't get the impression that in Buddhist monasteries, you know, there's there's government intrusion on content. I mean, either you're you're open and you're open for business or you're not. I don't think the government is that interested in that. The only time you're going to see the Chinese government become interested is in one of two things happen. Number one, there's a financial reward. Sure. Somebody wants a piece of that because it's a terribly corrupt place. And number two... Uh, that there's, they feel that there's some threat to their hegemony. And my favorite, uh, when was that? A year ago, two years ago? I can't remember when they passed this law requiring uh, permission to reincarnate. Did you read that one? <laughs> <laughs> and it was purely designed to die. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah, no, serious. Come on. That's a thing where you have to uh, get a license to be reincarnated. 
and he, that's great. <laughs> and he was no, really I, designed purely and exclusively for uh, you know Dalai Lama and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was designed so that nobody could claim to be the reincarnation of because hey, you don't have the license, you didn't get perfect. it in your previous life. That's really wonderful. I thought oh, it was awesome. Hilarious. So that that's was pretty really fun. Funny. But uh, it's, but um, besides obviously the Taoist philosophy, how much of the religious aspect of Taoism were you into or not? Um, so. Uh, very, very um, interesting question. Uh, the split between religious and philosophical Taoism is not new. Mm -hmm. This probably goes back... I mean, I, I want to say the Han Dynasty, Sui Dynasty, but I want to say the first few hundred years of the Common Era. Right. Um, and... I think the religious part of it was a direct answer to the growing influence of Buddhism, mm -hmm. which by the time the Yuan dynasty came around, which would be the time of Kublai Khan, you know, so 1200s maybe, uh, uh, common era, uh, you know, Taoism was, was in full retreat and Buddhism was really widely adopted. Um, but I think the identification, so this is a complex issue, uh, in the same way that Shinto in Japan became sort of folded into Zen mm -hmm. later, um, not, not the belief in forest spirits and that kind of thing that came from that native animism, but some of the structure and some of the sensitivity even even if it even if it's just you know the Zen people listen to this and go what are you talking about there's no Shinto in Zen, but but there is every time uh, a religion is imported and meets the local uh, mythos, things happen. Of it course. gets its own flavor, and this happened in China to uh, to Buddhism, it, it, Chan Buddhism, which in China which became Zen Buddhism in in. Uh, in Japan, was very heavily flavored by Taoism, and I think that the business of the Taoist, the pantheon of goddess of gods and goddesses in, in Taoism, was there was really a response to influences from the from Hinduism, mm -hmm. right? With multiple, you know, so many gods, three hundred million right. gods, or whatever it is, and uh, and also a result to wanting to give people something to pray to. Sure. So, for example, when I was in Sri Lanka last month, um, I, I noticed that Buddhist temples and Hindu temples exist side by side. Right. And, in, and people will go and they will pay their respects to the Buddha and they'll kowtow and they'll give incense and donation and then blah, 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 the Buddhism and compassion and transcendence and that's the kind of guy I want to be and all that. And then... They'll go down the street to the Hindu temple, and they'll give a few bucks to the to the elephant god, you know, to to uh, Ganesha, and they'll give some to the other god. This is the god that's going to make sure that my my wedding comes out nicely, or that my son has a good career, or that my crops come in well this Why year. Why not? Yeah, I mean, covering the bases. Sure. So, so you know, Taoist religion is very much of a folk religion, and it's tied to all uh, legendary characters. Um, the Jade Emperor, uh, and 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 a hundred other uh, characters, whether they're, uh, you know, the monkey and the journey to the West and all these 
stories, all these characters that developed, um, which were sort of woven together into this pantheon um, where the gods generally represented some natural force sure. or manifestation. The god of the north, the god of the river, the god of the tree, you know, and in that way, that's that's the link to Shinto mm-hmm. and to animism and to sort of native shamanism, right? Which is where it all started, because Lao Tzu was from the state of Chu, which was probably uh, Burma, actually, right? Because this is before there was a China, so mm-hmm. Qin Huangdi had not united China yet in the Qin Dynasty. So, anyway, um, you know, Lao Tzu and other uh, uh, early Taoists were shamans, and their relationship, which was um, uh, was was epitomized by the not not the Tao Te Ching, but by the Yi Ching, mm-hmm. which is a, a catalog of observations about how the natural world works. Yep. that stuff was really philosophy. Yeah, and and the Tao Te Ching was a commentary, is a commentary on the Yi Ching, which is. A, a vast encyclopedia of all the possible combinations of forces that can happen in nature and what my outcome may be. Yeah. And the Tao Te Ching was likely, as as Guy Leakley, whose book I recommended, told me when he read and translated from the early pictographs from some of the you know uh, the caves, uh, Mawang Dwe and others, that that it's obvious to him that the Tao Te Ching had five or six authors, mm-hmm. not just one voice, which is one of the reasons why we're not really sure there was someone called Lao Tzu, although those five or six authors could have been referring to their teacher in this way. Sure, sure, he sure. said that. He said, yeah, who knows? all that stuff is lost. Who yeah. knows? And who cares? Doesn't because matter. Because the content yeah. that matters. Exactly. You know, um, this, this is just the same trap that we can fall into, and I've I've written blog posts about this, you know, where, where we get so obsessed with the historicity or hagiography uh, of some legend that you know we, we're willing to kill each other yeah, yeah, of course right? and, and in the meantime ridiculous. you're missing the message yep. completely yep. so the Tao Te Ching is simply a, a commentary on the Yi Jing but it's applied I say simply it's applied very specifically to human life and and human yep. activities and the human character mm-hmm. which is why it's interesting so you know there was this split um, the Taoism that I follow really although there are rituals and proscribed things and in the in the temple in, in uh, Guangzhou, there are statues to some of these gods and so on. My particular interest is is in the pure philosophy. Right. So that's yeah. the aspect that, yeah. no, that makes sense. Right. Perfect. And that's what connects to Tai Chi, right? It's it's really, it's, it's not um, religious ritual. It's practically speaking how things work. Yep. Which is exactly what, in my mind, Taoism is all about, you know. That's, that's definitely it. Where um, where can people find your stuff? Um, website, Twitter, right? So the address on, uh, to your house so that they can sit twenty days in front of your place and uh, pet you your know. turtles. Yeah. Wow, pet your tortoises. that's the first time anyone suggested that horrific idea. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, dot com is the easy uh, way to get to the website. P l a y play t a i c h i dot com. The URL, another URL for it is just my name, ArthurRosenfeld.com. Uh, I am on uh, Facebook. I would be delighted if you would friend me there. Uh, Arthur Rosenfeld with with Yunro, my monk name, Y-U-N-R-O-U, inserted, so you'll know you have the right Arthur Rosenfeld. Uh, I am on Twitter at Macho Buddha. 
um, <laughs> which which I um, concocted exactly to yep. make guys like you crack up. Yep. And, uh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. There you go. Perfect. Awesome. I, I don't think we heard the tale of uh, becoming a, a monk in China, though. We should, we can't leave without that. Well, so, you know, I, my, my teacher arranged that. And, uh, you know, there's a ceremony, and I go and I spend time in the monastery. But, you know, the, the, the meaty part about that, really, is not so much the cemetery. It's not so much the, the ceremony. <laughs> the cemetery. The cemetery. The cem- not so much that. the cemetery. I think, I think it's it's a, seminary. That's a, fro- that's a Freudian one. The seminary, yeah, that too. Um, it, it's not so much the ritual um, of that that really is the relevant part. Um, you know, th- there's the personal connections, there's the invitation, there's the, that, all that. But really the meaty part of it is, you know, at some point I'm thinking, boy, you know, these guys spend seven years, you know, doing their uh, work at the monastery and I haven't done that and that's not right. And, and you know, the response is, you know, you've spent decades engaging these practices deeply and promoting them out to the world, which is a hell of a lot more than some of these guys have done, and don't worry about it. You know, you, you qualify, sort of, right? Um, and and that that is sort of the meaningful part of it to me. You know, we could talk about the rituals, you know, incense and chanting and all that, but but this is this is the real. You know, this is the meat of it. Deeds, the work. not words. Yeah, it's the work. You know, I was hoping for like some tale about some <laughs> wild sex with a Taoist goddess to come down from heaven and their perfect bodies. But okay, well, that's okay. I'll keep that for my Taoist ritual yeah. fantasies. Yeah, we save that for the books. Yeah, okay. You read, you want that? Read my books. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice. So the new book uh, is available now. You can get it on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, your local bookstore, Tai Chi, The Perfect Exercise. And then... Um, a number of novels that you might enjoy that are already in print waiting for your eager eyes uh, about Taoist ideas, martial arts ideas, The Crocodile and the Crane, The Cutting Season, and the third one, uh, uh, Quiet Teacher. I like those three for folks who've been listening here and like the martial arts themes. And then the forthcoming novel, The Laozi uh, Love Story, is yin y-i-n so look for that in in eight to 15 months when we get it uh, the publishing deal the right one for it and y-i-n yin like yin and yang good fun well recording this in the morning of my birthday i appreciate it very much because i feel this is an excellent gift i've been given and glad we get to share with all our friends out there beautiful thank you so much And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See you all soon.
Get back to work.